are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome everyone to a special evening, uh, a special talk uh, during Holy Week of 2023. And uh, I chose a specific reading this evening of a former professor from St. Vincent Archabbey, Father Thomas Acklin, a very holy priest. And uh, I'm not sure if he's still teaching at the seminary or not, uh, but he wrote a wonderful book a number of years ago. I think it was back in uh, 2009 called The Passion of the Lamb. And uh, it's an extraordinary, just a little book, little reflection on the the passion itself and uh, immersing ourselves in the mystery of it in such a way that it, it really does shape uh, our spirituality, but also how we approach evangelization as a whole. And uh, But there was one chapter in particular that has spoken to me. I've read the book a bunch of times over the course of these years, and there's one chapter that has stood out for me, uh, especially entitled, Behold His Face. And I chose that to reflect upon with you tonight uh, because it speaks to us about the the vulnerability of Christ in the midst of the passion and how it is that we are to enter into that mystery, how we understand a God who has taken upon himself our flesh in our incarnation, but also enters into the passion where he's mocked, he's he's, uh, scourged, and then ultimately put to death. And and what does this mean for us in terms of our experience of God, our understanding of our own vulnerabilities and sufferings in this life, and uh, how it is that we carry our own, own particular crosses? And one of the things that uh, I think he explores here better than anyone that I've come across uh, is this idea of our, our God being omnivulnerable and uh, uh, one who's not removed from our suffering, but who's intimately involved more than we can even begin to imagine. And he begins to explore this with us, uh, understanding that it is uh, a profound mystery and that we can only begin to unpack for ourselves and that we really come to understand mostly through our prayer life and through the grace and the insights that God gives to us. And so we'll do our best here this evening. Uh, If we don't get through the whole reading, uh, I'm not overly concerned about it. You have the PDF uh, for your reflection throughout the course of this week. I think it's the perfect reading for Holy Week. And uh, if we come away simply from his, with this, from, with his understanding 
of the, the vulnerability of Christ, uh, I'd be uh, exceptionally pleased. And so why don't we begin, begin with the, the text itself. The red print is just my little introduction here, and then we'll go right into his text. We'll treat this as we do the group on the Evergetinos and the Ladder of Divine Ascent. We'll go through a couple of paragraphs, I'll make some uh, comments, and then we'll open it up for uh, wider discussion. Okay. As we enter into Holy Week, this group will invite us to gaze with eyes of faith upon the face of Christ, to see the depths of his vulnerability and love. God is omnivulnerable. He is the well with true water of life in it, springing up to eternal life, flowing from the sacred, all-loving wounds of Christ. We are to be drawn through this gaze into the Paschal mystery. We must try to develop the vulnerability to be able to unite ourselves with God, who is vulnerable enough to come before us in the Holy Eucharist, a Savior who pulls our wounds into his own. And so... The Paschal mystery, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ stands before us not simply as an historical event and one that we think about in an abstracted fashion as something that redeems us, frees us from our sin, opens up to us uh, the experience of eternal life and eternal life in the future, but rather a mystery that we are called to enter now and to participate in in the fullest measure now, uh, to already begin to experience something of this perfect love of God that pours itself out for us uh, on the cross and in the Holy Eucharist as well. And every time we come forward to receive the Holy Eucharist, we are saying yes to this love, this omnivulnerable love, this uh, this perfect self-emptying love. We are saying yes to receive it and to have it transform us in order that we might bear witness to this love within the world. And so it becomes essential for us, as St. Paul tells us, to discern the body, to understand uh, who and what we are receiving and what that means for our day-to-day -day life, how it is that we love and give ourselves and love. And it's in particular through gazing upon the face of Christ in his passion, allowing ourselves to be drawn through contemplation into this mystery, uh, that we not only come to see the beauty of it in the, in the midst of what is also horrific, uh, but also uh, are transformed by it as well. And so he begins, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And he's quoting uh, the Gospel of John here, but this is from Isaiah, the prophet, I believe. Pope John Paul II over the years repeatedly encouraged us, especially young people, to seek the face of Christ. As I mentioned previously, we can resist this call going to great lengths to keep our relationship with Jesus indirect. This seems particularly true to, to, to be true of the face of Jesus crucified. This is the very face of love itself. If some people find the depiction of the sufferings of Christ to be abhorrent, almost obscene. And it's an interesting way to begin the chapter. And he draws our attention to a kind of resistance that we, we struggle with uh, with ourselves, both on a spiritual level and an emotional level. 
that when we are faced with the sufferings of Christ, we will shrink back from that reality uh, because it is very difficult uh, to, to reflect upon and to gaze upon as it is to gaze upon any suffering within this world. Uh, and yet part of the reason that we shrink back isn't simply because of uh, how horrific it is, but because there's something about gazing upon this face upon the face of Christ in particular, that calls for a response and demands a response from us. That this kind of love that is being offered to us uh, beckons a response from our hearts. And so it is this resistance that we have to struggle with in the spiritual life uh, and seek to overcome uh, through a life of deep prayer, through the reception of the Holy Eucharist, and through allowing ourselves to meditate and contemplate upon the mystery uh, of the passion itself. Uh, we are fortunate here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to have uh, two passionist communities, a community of men and women. And uh, uh, the women's community is uh, cloistered and contemplative. And I've mentioned here before that their life surrounds their reflection upon the, 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 the Paschal mystery, the passion of Christ. And they are deeply immersed in it. And yet they are the most joyful individuals I've ever encountered, if you've ever had the opportunity to, to visit the convent. And part of it is, I think, their participation in the peace and the joy of the kingdom. Uh, in allowing themselves to be drawn into this reality, they experience it again in no abstract fashion, uh, any more than Mary did at the foot of the cross. And yet they also know the joy that comes to us and that is promised to us in and through it. But in our day-to-day -day spiritual life, we have to struggle with a kind of resistance to this. We resist the cross and taking it up and carrying it and uniting it to Christ. He goes on to say, the cross is a source of scandal. Jews can see it as an instrument of the most despicable criminal, criminal execution, but also as a sign of the persecution they've experienced at the hands of Christians. Many Christians have difficulty seeing a cross with a corpus, sometimes claiming that the resurrection of Christ should supersede his passion and death. But theological reasons are usually mixed with other deep feelings. So, you know, the Romans used this as the, the worst kind of uh, execution of a criminal. And it was meant uh, not simply to put them to death, uh, but to prolong that death in such a way uh, where they would also be mocked by the crowd and they would be humiliated. And so they would be exposed in the most complete and radical way. Uh, we often sanitize it, I think, in particular with our images of, of the crucifixion, not to understand what really takes place there, even just on a physical level, uh, basically slowly suffocating to death, uh, the loss of blood, the loss of the control of one's bodily functions, you know, all of these things would have been happening and happened to individuals who underwent crucifixion. And this is what our Lord enters into. And so as Paul tells us, you know, it's a stumbling block 
for the Jews and, and, and nonsense for, for the Gentiles. Uh, that how could this be something that reveals to us love and not only reveals to us love, but the, the greatest love, uh, a love that is redemptive for us. And so even among Christians, Father Ackland is saying here that uh, many have argued on a theological level that our focus should be on the resurrection, the fruit uh, of the passion. And in some uh, and some churches, they have uh, what, what, would, what is it often called a resurrections, you know, that uh, the risen Christ on the cross, uh, not uh, one in a more realistic fashion of, of what Christ underwent. And sometimes, especially when we look at what comes out of uh, places like Spain, South America, some of the images are very detailed and very realistic in terms of the crucifixion of Christ, so much so that they are jarring to the sensibilities uh, of many, including Christians here. And this is what uh, Father Ackland puts his finger on, that uh, there's always going to be something within us that pulls back from this. And spiritually, emotionally, uh, we have to seek to enter into it, despite uh, what our sensibilities might be telling us. Even Catholics who are accustomed to seeing crucifixes in their churches and their schools and homes can recoil when they see a crucifix that realistically depicts the suffering, the wounds, the blood, the agony. There is a preference here for a symbolic depiction rather than a realistic one. Why is the realism repelling even for those who believe and perhaps especially for them? And so that's an interesting question. That, you know, why is it that the more realistic depiction, especially for those who have faith in Christ, who love him, uh, find it very difficult to look at, find it abhorrent? Is there something about this that goes beyond, again, uh, the physical aspect of this that, that we shrink back from in such a way that it also prevents us from understanding this greater truth? He writes, I connect this. React, this reaction uh, people sometimes have to graphic depictions of an aborted fetus. We look away from these attempts to bring us face to face with the reality of murder in the womb. Similarly, we find it difficult to look at pictures of starving people. Yet blessed are the hungry, the persecuted, the poor in spirit, the meek, the least ones, hard as it is to gaze upon them. And when they are all embodied at one time in the person of Jesus Christ, especially if he is not depicted in his glory or in some other way that paints over the passion, then we have to look and see. The obscenity of pornography lies in taking what ought to be intimate and exposing it, reducing a person to a mere object of lust. Is it the exposure of the naked truth the violence done to what is beautiful and intimate, the abuse of love that bothers us or that ought to bother us if we have not anesthetized ourselves to the obscenity through addiction. So is, uh, you know, what is going on for us when we are faced with realities like this, when we are presented with uh, graphic images, as he describes here, uh, of, you know, aborted babies or starving 
children throughout the world, uh, when we are, are presented with these in an unvarnished fashion, uh, what, what is it that makes us pull back from this? Uh, especially when in our day and age, we, we seem to be able to gaze upon uh, great images of violence in movies or in pornography uh, to have what is good and true and beautiful, as he says here, about the intimacy between a man and a woman be uh, obscured and individuals being treated with abuse or objectified. Uh, how do we understand that unless we become addicted to it? And so it becomes acceptable to us on, on that level that, uh, you know, what is the reason our, for our resistance then? Are we resistant to something different here when we see it in the most vulnerable uh, or when we see it in Christ or when we see it for what it really is uh, as opposed to when, uh, when we see it through eyes that have been darkened uh, through addiction as with pornography uh, or as with violence in, in the movies where it becomes uh, not only something that's uh, easy for us to gaze upon, that, but often, uh, and but also often offers a, a kind of satisfaction, a thrill in gazing upon it, a uh, kind of morbid delight. And so, you know, Tom Acklin is an analyst, a psychoanalyst as well by training, and uh, and so he's pushing us here and his readers. I think to explore things on both a spiritual and emotional level. What is it that happens to us when we are presented with the passion of Christ? And he's going to go on here to talk a little bit with us about uh, especially what emerges uh, within Mel Gibson's movie and the, the varying responses uh, to that as, as well and uh, to how the passion of the Lord was depicted. But I think it's enough for us now uh, just to hold within our minds some of the contradictions that he puts forward here. Why is it that we can uh, find these images and all of them wrapped up in Christ uh, and found in him so abhorrent and yet be immersed so deeply immersed in them on this ever, other level? of our life and seem to be unfazed by it. How do we account for that contradiction within the human mind and heart? So just to hold that uh, within the thoughts for a moment. Any questions or comments so far before I go on? So, so far he's just setting things up for us for a deeper kind of reflection. Um, I would just ask, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Uh, I would just add for anyone interested, there is a YouTube channel called Pints with Aquinas and they had a video, I think a couple months back, you can look it up just by searching Shroud of Turin on YouTube probably. And there is a, is a father who is also a scientist and he studied the Shroud of Turin very deeply mm -hmm. and in such great detail about what the agony was like on the cross that it has a very similar effect to watching the Passion of the Christ movie. The description of ligaments and bleeding, I won't go into too much gory detail, but it's, it's definitely worth checking out for the same sort of experience. 
Very good. And if you're able to put a, a link in the chat section, I don't know how easy that is for you to do, uh, but uh, you could do that and that would make it easier for people and also show up in our podcast as well uh, for people who happen to listen later. There's also uh, a book called the a Doctor at Calvary that explores things in the same kind of fashion that you describe that I would recommend too, if you would be interested and exploring that more fully, what takes place on a physical level, at least. Uh, Patricia, I see your hand going up there. I remember when I saw The Passion of Christ and everybody in the movie just sat there like for about 12 minutes, before, no one could even move. And I think the part about his eye hanging out and all the skin off his back and the bones off his back, we don't realize how violent and how really horrible it was, how destroyed he really was. And you ask why it's so important. It's so important because it's a terrible thing to do to any person in general. It's just ripping them apart, body and soul. Who could ever endure it? But especially our Lord, who is only so good and loving and, and doing that to die for our sins. It's just such an outrage. It's just you can't even cope with it because it's just too intense. It's too much. It's way too much violence for way too much good. It's so out of balance that it just is overwhelming. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what part of that's part of what uh, Father Tom is putting his finger on here. It is abhorrent, as you just des described. And seeing it, you know, most people have a visceral reaction to it when they watch it. And my experience was the same. The, 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 the theater was silent following it. But I think what he's trying to put forward here is why is there a contradiction then? when we are often exposed to so much violence within the world and often uh, do not experience that. And in some, in some ways we can uh, even allow ourselves to be exposed to things uh, in one way or another, images that would be contrary to love. And so we'll, we'll follow him along here and just see where, where he takes us with, with it. He goes on to say, in the name of freedom of expression, the world expects Christians to tolerate with open mind and good humor perversions of the symbols of their faith in a way that expects, it expects no other group of believers to tolerate. The crucifix, though it is an object, represents the most intimate act of love possible. Thus, distress is understandable if we see a crucifix being lacquered in feces or a dead rat, as I once saw. And I think we've all we've encountered this in the, the news from uh, you know, on occasion, where certain artists will uh, sort of reach for this kind of shock experience to take something like the crucifix and to present it uh, as you know submerged in a jar of urine, for example. I think was the, the one that I remember most frequently, and or the ones described here by Father Tom. And so we will respond to it uh, as being uh, a perversion of, of what is good. So on one level, there, we have so many different responses to the same thing I think he's pointing out to us that it can be confusing for us how, how to look at this. Perversion, even under the label of artistic expression, always wants to play with and abuse what otherwise would be too overwhelming for us to look upon and realize. 
There is something radically wrong with a man who passively allows his wife to be raped or even verbally violated. And there's something equally wrong with the indifference of a believer to sacrilege of sacraments and sacramentals. So there should be, I think we've, what he uh, draws our attention to here is that we live in a world that uh, is, is growing more and more comfortable with the perversion of things that have great value to us and that are meant to be treated with uh, great tenderness and seen as being precious. Uh, we're confronted with this over and over again. And uh, he calls it for what it is, a kind of perversion of reality. Uh, you know, even as an analyst, you know, in the international community that's still used as a term clinically, uh, perversion, uh, in a way that maybe we're not used to, but it is this kind of distortion of reality and view of reality that can emerge over time, and especially, you know, as a culture begins to fall apart and that which forms and shapes the human mind and heart and sensibilities of children very early on, it can skew our perception of reality uh, to such an extent that uh, one might even say that we are driven or compelled uh, to look at such things or produce such things uh, to elicit an effect within us. And, uh, and so that which is typically treasured by those whose minds and hearts have been formed uh, in a particular way. Uh, in our day and age, I think, those same minds are being formed with a different symbolic perception of symbolic reality. They don't give the same truth, the same weight, the same value to the things that previous generations did. And so we find greater and greater aberrations uh, taking place in our own day that are more and more disturbing. And uh, so it's here, you know, with these things in mind, that he turns to the sufferings of Christ. What do we make of this? And, uh, you know, as we see it depicted within art or in the movies, but more importantly, what, what do we make of this within our own hearts and illuminated by our faith? He writes, a woman told me that she had never seen such violence and hatred in a movie as she saw the in The Passion of the Christ. She must not see many movies. But any violence and hatred in that movie was, for me, totally eclipsed by Christ's love. I marveled at how he seemed to want to take on more, to drink the cup to the dregs, to stand up and go further. The depth of his suffering was apparent for me less in what was done by his tormentors and more by their eyes. They seemed to need each other for reinforcement yet they never looked at anyone, especially Christ, directly in the eyes. When Christ's eyes met theirs, there was a fleeting, disconcerting moment, then confusion, then looking away. Sin is like that. I love this paragraph and the insight that it uh, presents us with. Of course, he's talking about Gibson's movie here, but he's also talking about something about the nature of sin. Even those who are engaged in it freely and fully, 
that underneath it is still a conscience, no matter how darkened it has become. And underneath it is still the spark and the light uh, of God's life and grace that brings us into creation and, and sustains us. And so even when engaged in the acts of greatest torment, as we see here in Christ, what Gibson picked up so well psychologically in the movie was the look and the expression on the faces of the actors playing his tormentors. That the inability to look at the one uh, that they were torturing and this look to each other for reinforcement and I, think, I don't think we have to look too far in our own experience and human nature to understand that. Whenever one's conscience might be bothered uh, when acting alone, this kind of group think that emerges uh, can allow uh, the, the greatest kind of, of evil, evil to begin to emerge. And so they keep their eyes fixed on each other. They find reinforcement in it and they find reinforcement also in their laughter about what is taking place too. Laughter is a defense mechanism. And for most of us, it's a positive defense mechanism. That psychologically, laughter will help us deal with the realities of our day-to-day -day life or with our own weaknesses, our foibles. We, we can see the humor in certain aspects uh, of our, our weakness as human beings and uh, our ability uh, to look at it uh, with a kind of humor allows us to move past it, not allowing it to shape our identity or to diminish our identity. But it also can be used in the way that uh, Father Tom is speaking about here that it can be used in such a way to uh, remove us from, in, in a similar way, from the, the deeper truth there that, that uh, is present, a weakness. And here is, in this case, it's the weakness that often is the source of violence and aggression that is either directed towards ourselves or towards others that there is a part of us, and Freud picked this up, and it never gained much uh, traction among analysts until more recent times of a death instinct, or what he describes as a death drive. Thomas Merton actually picked up on it and wrote about those spiritually, that there can be a part of us psychologically that seeks to undermine uh, the, what is good within us or what is held out to us and uh, that moves towards, uh, towards death itself or to destruction, to dismantle what God has created. And sin, I think from a Christian perspective, we would see what is at the heart of that, uh, our sin or the fall, that we are driven at times to pursue things almost in contradiction to ourselves and Paul talks about this, Augustine talks about it, that we often will cho choose or do the very things that we hate. And these are men who had very sensitive consciences and had this deep love for Christ. They could see within themselves a destructive tendency. And I think if we're, we're honest with ourselves, we, we can see this contradiction that lies within us. 
this kind of movement towards what is dark or taking a morbid delight in things that are contrary to love and contrary to the will of God. And we see it acted out in Christ's persecutors and acted out so powerfully in that, that movie. And so, you know, he just in the first paragraph here, she must not see many movies if she was abhorred by, you know, found herself uh, abhorrent uh, uh, with abhorrent feelings about the violence there, because just about every one of our movies today has an excessive amount of violence. And so, but there, again, there's something different here that Tom, Father Tom is drawing us towards. Uh, that's tied more directly to sin and to love that we are called to reflect upon, especially during this week. He goes on to say, the passion and the suffering of Christ go beyond any physical torture and occur most deeply in the wounds of vulnerable love being blindly scorned and abused. The movie sums up Jesus' response to this suffering when his mother catches up with him on the way to Calvary, as she looks into his agonized eyes, he simply says almost with joy, look, mother, I make all things new. Here indeed is the lamb who was slain. So what we see in the passion, Father um, describes for us, is something that goes far beyond torture and far, what, far beyond what the, the Romans were seeking to afflict Christ with uh, in, on the cross. But the wounds of vulnerable love being blindly scorned and abused. I think if we underline something, that would be a good thing to underline. Wounds of vulnerable love being blindly scorned. And the vulnerable love, not simply of any individual, but of Christ himself. And as we unpack this reflection more deeply, we'll see exactly what that means and what it means, I think, when we uh, scorn it, when we turn away from it or are indifferent to it, blind to it in some way, and also what is possible when we embrace it and what that means for us in our day-to-day -day life and our experience of God as well. It's hard to understand how God, even the Son of God, become human, can suffer. This is probably one of the most obvious reasons why many people do not really believe that in Jesus Christ, we have the eternal Son of God in person. They do not believe that he's eternally divine in every way that the Father is divine and has in time become human in every way that we are human. It's a powerful statement to say, because he's not just saying this uh, about those in the world out there. I think he's, he's saying this about Christians, that when push comes to shove, as it were, and when we are confronted with this reality uh, and gaze upon it face to face, as it were, that there's a part of us that does not perhaps believe in the fullness of what has been revealed to us in Christ and what the church has taught that does not take hold of the truth of the incarnation and that God could empty himself in precisely the way that, that uh, uh, St. Paul describes it for us, 
that Christ empties himself, becomes a slave, a servant, obedient even unto death upon the cross. That there is part of us and that and has been part of the struggle for Christians throughout the centuries to move away from that in one way or another, theologically, emotionally, trying to, to explain it in such a way as to hold on to something about God that they believe is necessary, that God is impassable, if you will, incapable of suffering, incapable of feeling. And so in the name of protecting this truth on a theological level, it, uh, the, one would be pushed then to undermine uh, the reality of the incarnation and the reality of the Paschal mystery, the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord, that somehow it was just apparent uh, that this happened, uh, that in reality, it was not the truth. And he goes on to explain how does we approach, approach this. So we, we can see where he, again, where he's taking us from the psychological and emotional and the physical now into the deeper spiritual and theological questions that our resistance to this makes us then call into question even if it's not uh, let's see conscious for us in our day-to-day -day living out our catholic faith that we in some ways can deny some of the, the fundamental truths by how we are living our, our life and how we are responding to the passion. And so we ask, how can God suffer? How can God die? Christ, while remaining always the eternal son, emptied himself of his divinity or his divine prerogatives in some sense. But how did his divinity and humanity interplay in this passion? If he could see ahead to the resurrection, how could he really suffer and die? How could he, in any sense, be vulnerable, capable of being wounded? The church has never tried to exhaustively explain this mystery of love, simply because it cannot be exhaustively explained. So what we say here are only suggestions. The church has insisted that we cannot say that since he is God, he did not really suffer and did not really die, that he only appeared to suffer and die, and therefore only appeared to be human. And so this was the uh, heresy called docetism that sought to de deny uh, this full embrace of our humanity in, in the incarnation. And likewise, he goes on to explain, nor can we say that he stopped being God long enough to live and die and became God again, or that he became God for the first time in his resurrection. So he so perfectly obeyed God as a human being and so perfectly fulfilled the will of God as a human being that he was somehow made divine at the resurrection. But in his suffering and death, uh, this heresy of adoptionism says that, uh, that the, his divinity was completely abstracted from this. And so... What I love about this reflection is that Tom, Father Tom, does such a wonderful job, I think, in, in bringing these theological truths uh, into our real experience 
on a day-to-day level and how we experience the things that we are going to be reflecting upon and celebrating throughout the entirety of this week. What, what does what we are doing liturgically, how we are praying at the liturgies really mean for us? And what is our experience and understanding of it at the most fundamental level of our being and the deepest level of our religiosity? Do we really believe what we are or what we're praying? Any questions before? Yes, Patricia. I have a question. It's about him not stopping being God when he became Jesus. So if he's being crucified, is he still God seeing himself be crucified? You know what I'm saying? Like from a heavenly perspective, mm-hmm. he's still viewing that as something, I don't want to say outside of himself because it's not outside of himself, but he's not stopped being God. <laughs> and so he's not just a, a body on the cross dying. So is he a perception from heaven seeing his physical body being destroyed? Excellent questions. And these are exactly the questions that Father Tom uh, is going to address here. Okay. But I think what you, you put your finger on is important here that, you know, these truths, these realities are mysteries of God himself. And uh, when we think about meditating upon these things theologically, we're always going to be very limited. And so this is why Father Tom in this paragraph says, the church never offers an exhaustive answer to this, because in reality, we cannot. That there are limitations that we have uh, intellectually and on the level of reason, that no matter how beautifully or precisely we speak of these realities, we're never going to capture the fullness of God as he is in himself or the fullness of the Paschal mystery, of the fullness of the meaning of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection. The only way that we are able to experience this is by entering into it and through faith, which is a kind of knowing but it is uh, a theological virtue. It's a gift of God. And so it's a truth that is comprehended that is beyond reason and intellect, that is perceived and experienced in and through this relationship with God. So uh, we've talked about this many times in our group on the fathers, that for them, Uh, A person who does not pray yet studies theology would be incomprehensible. That to be a theologian is to be a prayer, to study the things of God, other than in an abstract way, in a distorted way, without having any true, real, and experiential knowledge of God, is foolhardy, but also dangerous. And so without being pure of heart, Far from doing and engaging in true theology, uh, the fathers say it's demonic theology, that there's always this capacity for great deception, delusion, and, and in fact, often by those who are closest to Christ, leading a deep and spiritual life, like Arius, 
you know, uh, you know, out of whose out of whose thought arises Arianism. Uh, you know, was a prayerful man, a holy man, and others, you know, throughout history as well, you know, simply by having faith or believing on an intellectual level is not enough. There has to be a kind of humility there, a purity of heart, a depth of love that allows God to draw us into this mystery. It's not something that we reach out, in other words, for ourselves and take hold of, as we do with so many, many things. We, we are taught from the earliest age that we approach education in a consumerist fashion. So we consume as much information as we can, and we are pushed earlier and earlier uh, to study and education. Not that I have any problem with education, but we often will have a kind of conceit of knowledge when we are approaching faith and things of the faith in that regard. Whenever pride enters into the picture, whenever we sit in judgment of what has been revealed to us, and this is what we believe as Christians in a revealed religion, that God has made himself manifest to us in a unique, distinctive, and decisive way in his son, completely. He's revealed himself and made himself manifest to us. And yet this is not something that we can take hold of and seize and say, I understand that fully and completely. And, you know, in the way that we speak about the faith uh, to others has to be understood in this way too, that, you know, we cannot be beating people over the head or compelling them to faith any more than we can be torturing them into the faith, since faith is a gift. And so I think what Father Tom is setting up for us here is the struggle that we have as human beings to deal with this divine reality that is being revealed to us in Christ and has been revealed to us in him through the passion. How is it that we approach this and allow ourselves to be drawn into it in order that in and through our faith, we might begin to comprehend something of the nature of this love that then allows us to enter into the questions that you put forward and that people have been asking for centuries. How, how is it that we approach these questions, not only intellectually, but as men and women of faith? Because the, in the end, that's the only way that we are going to perceive the truth of what has been revealed to us. And again, you know, this tells us something vital in our engagement of the world around us. You know, often I think we seek to engage uh, in a way that, well, we just need to say the right things or write the right books or have the best, you know, right programs that we present to, to people to explain it to them rather than living it. What we are called to as Christian men and women is to embody this very love that we are reflecting upon tonight in the world. And we, that should require no words from us uh, to speak to the depths of the human heart, especially if we believe that we are made in the image and likeness of God, that we are made for him. So if we bear witness to that love through which we've been created, 
then it should speak to the depths of the, the minds and the hearts of every person that we encounter. That is, if we are saints, if we've embraced this love fully in our lives. And so, you know, Father Tom does a much better job than I can here. So the next couple of paragraphs in particular, uh, I think, are essential. And uh, so let's, you know, re read them attentively and then unpack them. It might help us, he writes, to understand the passion of the divine son if we remember what we have said earlier. And he's speaking here to an earlier portion of the book. That while God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and all the other omnis, he is infinite, self-emptying love. We can say that he is omnicanotic or omnivulnerable. Here we are really talking about not only what Jesus suffered in his passion and death on the cross, but the passion with which he entered into the incarnation and with which he lived his whole life. So we have this tendency to think of the passion, again, in an historical way. You know, our minds work in this linear fashion. And so even when we think about the life of Christ, we think of the, the passion, the self-emptying love as being made manifest at the crucifixion, which is true to say that it's manifest in this uh, perfect outpouring. Uh, and Christ himself says in the gospel you know, uh, that I've come to set the world on fire. And I, oh, how I wish it was already burning. He, he longs for the moment when he can empty himself, when he can pour out this love, this perfect love of the spirit upon the wood of the cross. And so this is what Father Tom is saying here, that we are comfortable in speaking of all these different omnis and describing God, omniscient all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, but rarely do we reflect upon God as being omnicanotic, that is self-emptying, omnivulnerable. Uh, as, you know, the word uh, vulnerable comes from uh, vulnerous, which means wounded, that one can be exposed uh, to the... Uh, the hatred, the anger, the aggression of others. And to so, so to speak of God as being omnivulnerable in that love, is, it, is our God capable of pouring that love uh, upon us so radically and fully? And so you see the debate coming, what Father Tom is struggling with here and wants us to struggle with is here, is are we going to look at God as impassable? You know, he sets things in motion, but is removed from the reality of our struggle and from the reality of our sin? Or do we see him uh, not only deeply immersed in that, you know, as he was stood in the, the River Jordan with all the sinners who were coming forward to be baptized, even though there was no, no need for it, you know, he shows a kind of radical solidarity there with us. Is our God capable, uh, and, and is this part of the reality of God, of offering himself to us in this fashion? And so he, Tom says, Father Tom says, the passion of the cross isn't only present there, but is present in the incarnation. 
We've seen the, this downward mobility, this self-emptying take place when our God becomes incarnate, where he becomes infants, where the word of God uh, becomes a, a baby, one who is incapable of words. So he, in and through whom, all of creation comes into being, uh, be, enters into that creation in such a way that he becomes radically vulnerable. He becomes an infant. He takes upon himself our flesh with all of its weakness and poverty. And we even see, in, uh, as we've reflected here throughout Lent, upon the specific temptations that the evil one puts to our Lord. And it's precisely directed at this identity change the stones into bread, cast off the poverty of that humanity, its hunger, its emptiness, change the stones into bread for yourself, use your divine power, or fling yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, you know, make yourself a kind of magic act to wow the crowds, reveal uh, your true divinity and power, that you have legions of angels who will come to protect you from being wounded or seize by divine right all that is yours in this world, uh, all the kingdoms and all the wealth of this world. So cast off this, the poverty that precisely that you've come to embrace and embrace it in, in, in a way that includes everything that has been affected and touched by sin, including death. And so Father Tom goes on, was he affected as the son of God by our sins, by the condition of those whom he met? Or was he somehow impassable? If the latter, he is without passion, not only in a human sense, but also in any analogous divine sense. How can we then think of or imagine anything like divine concern or care? In fact, a God without passion, in some analogous sense to ours, a God who is unaffected or unconcerned, who does not care, would be a monster. This is another line, I think, to underline and reflect upon. You know, what does it say or what would it say to us about our understanding of God? if we were to view him in this way as untouched and untouchable or as one who does not touch us, does not enter into that reality and experience it on any level. And, uh, you know, I think part of this, again, is the, our weaknesses as human beings that seeks to box God in in a particular way that is manageable and controllable in our own mind, that does not stretch us to the limits, to the breaking point of our human sensibilities and reason. And uh, this is what Father Tom is telling us. There's part of us that has to be willing to let go of all of that in faith and allow ourselves to be drawn along in the darkness of that faith to perceive the greater truth that is being revealed to us. And again, there's no better time for us to be thinking about that than during Holy Week. 
And so he says, we cannot attribute to God human qualities that are sheer deficiencies, such as sinfulness, hatred, ignorance, or illness. We can, however, attribute to him an infinite, perfect way, the good qualities that we have in a finite and even deficient way. So isn't that beautiful? We're created in an image and likeness of God. And so we, we know that we cannot project onto God that which is rooted in our limitation and the limitation of our sin. But does that mean that we cannot attribute to God or understand God who's created us in his image and likeness as embodying, if you will, uh, the, that which is most beautiful, that those qualities of love most beautiful in the perfect fashion? I think it's a great, great question. And so he, he moves on from this and says, I would propose that rather than being impassable, incapable of feeling, or having passion as we human beings do, it would be more accurate to say that not only Christ, but all three divine persons are infinitely concerned, infinitely caring, infinitely affected by us, omnipassable, if you will. So now, you know, Tom isn't playing games here. He knows that there are limitations to his own understanding and how he's articulating this here. But I think what he does a wonderful job in doing is again, stretching us to approach this and to see it in and through the eyes of faith. Can, can we think of our God in this way as omnipassable? One who not only cares, but cares infinitely. One who's not only is affected, but is affected infinitely. And so also one who loves and loves infinitely. And I think that's the question for us. In order for our experience of Christ not to be as flat as the page, of the, as the words that we read from the gospel, but rather... Uh, a living word, and more than that, you know, the, the very embodiment of our God for us, and that we receive within the Holy Eucharist itself. And so he goes on to say, God loves infinitely, pouring himself out infinitely, and never being in the least exhausted by this, infinitely vulnerable and affected by everything without in the least being diminished by it at all. This is how the three divine persons love perfectly in their oneness. This is how God was loved and has loved and redeemed us through the incarnation, past, passion, and death of his son. So he brings us to a kind of ju jumping off point here, you know, to this understanding of the infinite passion, which is the next section, that not only... Uh, is God capable of loving us, but loving us in may maybe a way that we've never even considered, even as men and women of faith. And even though we receive that love in the Holy Eucharist all the time, uh, I received a direct message here. Uh, I hope it's okay if I, I read it. Uh, you could tell me if not. 
but uh, I think it's a good question. What I find most difficult to grasp is not the grisly reality of our Lord's passion, oddly enough, but his apparently intense desire for intimacy with us. How can God, the creator of the infinite universe, be so intimate with us insignificant creatures? My difficulty might be because although I was born Catholic, I was raised Protestant, so was I. And uh, I think there is something about being Catholic and about the incarnational worldview that we have and that shapes the way that we understand and experience our God, that our God became one of us, that he took our flesh upon himself, and that this forever and radically changes our understanding of God, but also of ourselves as human beings. And I think how you put it here is uh, interesting in how we often see ourselves. Uh, how can God, the creator of the infinite universe, be so intimate with us insignificant creatures? And you'd be surprised. Uh, I think how many men and women of faith, you know, even in celebrating Holy Week and celebrating Easter, celebrating the resurrection, believe themselves to be damned. That the, in reality, that the, the stone rolled in front of the tomb still holds it sealed. That they believe that because of their sin, past or present, their weakness, their poverty, that this is their destiny. And part of that is a temptation, the deepest temptation for us. And I think it's the temptation that was put to Adam and Eve, and it's the temptation that was put to Christ, and it is now put to us who have been made sons and daughters of God, and then through Christ, that we are insignificant creatures rather than those who have been raised up uh, through Christ, Paschal, through the Paschal mystery, to share in the very life of the Holy Trinity, that what we are called to is deification, that it is part of the mind of God. This is, is what we explicitly proclaim as Christian men and women, is part of the mind of God that we participate fully in the perfect love and life of the Most Holy Trinity, that our very hum humanity has been transformed, transfigured, and raised to life in the Holy Trinity, that Christ is the first fruits of this reality. This is what we celebrate at the Ascension, which I often feel is our most under-celebrated feast day, an ignored feast day, even though it's our feast day. It should be our feast day preeminently because what we see is Christ raised the our, you know, and we catch a glimpse there of, of the res resurrected body, what that reality means for us in terms of our experiencing of, of ourselves as human beings and our participation in the very life of God. It's not simply Christ returning to his father. It's his returning to my God and your God, to my father and your father, as he tells Mary at the empty tomb, that reality itself has changed in our experience of ourselves as human beings. Death has been overcome, sin has been overcome, 
and that in and through faith, we've been raised up now to share in something far greater than even what Adam and Eve experienced. We've been raised up now to share in the fullness of the life of the Holy Trinity. And so part of what we are called to struggle to overcome is this sense of ourselves as being insignificant creatures. The whole incarnation and the Paschal mystery reveals to us it's just the opposite. Far from being insignificant creatures and uh, those who've been, were those who've been made in the image and likeness of God, but those that God, whom God loves so deeply that he is willing to be omnipassable, omni-affected, and in the sense of entering into that reality so fully as to raise it up, that he would have nothing that he has created lost to him. And uh, I think part of what we struggle with and what often darkens our vision is a sense of shame that our sin brings upon us and guilt. You know, these have their place, of course, because they reveal to us the ways that we have turned away from God. Our conscience being one of the ways in particular that we are rebuked, you know, the, through this voice within us that God has given to us, the, 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 ways that, the way by which we know with God we come to see the ways that we've turned away from him and away from our high dignity and destiny. And so our shame and our guilt uh, can call us back to him. But so often for us, it is an end in itself. And again, we don't find this in the writings of the Eastern Fathers. What we find in them is this understanding of compunction, that where there is a joy, it's, they call it a sorrowful joy, a sorrow, a deep sorrow of, of having turned away from that dignity, that identity, and turned away from this infinite love that's been poured out for us, that, that touches us in such a way that it brings us back to God and into that intimacy. And so this, the sorrow that we experience for our, our sin should always lead to a repentance that turns us back toward God. But so often, it turns us into ourselves in an even more profound way uh, and darkens our vision, steals our hope, our hope in the promises of Christ, that we aren't insignificant creatures, that it is the will of God, as the scriptures tell us, that all be saved, that this has to be our hope, that God desires uh, uh, not certainly destroying our freedom, but it is in the mind of God, it is the desire of God uh, that all would come to share in the fullness of that life. And uh, until we move away I think from this truncated view of faith uh, that has, you know, partly to do with our being, uh, having cut ourselves off so deeply from the spiritual and theological tradition, and in some ways the liturgical tradition of the church as well, that we've lost, we're beginning to lose sight of. We're losing grip of what it is to be a Christian, our dignity, our identity in Christ.
And now it has become something of indifference for most, uh, and even those who might even call themselves Christian in, in, in the sense of its impact upon our day-to-day -day life. But think about it for a moment. If, if we understood the love of God in the way that is being described here, if we understood the passion in the way that is, is described here, again, we, there would be, it would take everyone to hold us back from receiving the Holy Eucharist or from spending time in prayer that we would fight a fierce spiritual battle to overcome the passions, to grow in virtue, to pray without ceasing. And part of what prevents us is our inability to see the depth of this love, to place limitations on it. And part of this, again, is the seduct seduction of the evil one, to make us call into question the very heart of what has been revealed to us. And this struggle is nothing new. You know, again, this is something that the, the church has struggled with from its very inception, because we're, we're all we're amidst, we're always engaged in this kind of spiritual battle. I'm going to have to excuse myself just for a moment. Somebody's knocking at the door and is pestering me. And so I'll be right back. Okay, we have a late joiner, the group, my dog, Duke. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sorry for any noise uh, that might distract us here a little bit. Okay, so uh, before we move on, anything that anyone would like to add, any questions, concerns about what's been said so far? Patricia. I see in our society how people, politicians and people are just rejecting God, fathers, you know, we can't have a father, we can't have a male over us, we can't have anyone telling us what to do. And I think that's really a rejection of, you know, we're supposed to be obedient to commands of God and, and made in his image and likeness. And now people have decided, well, they're going to have their own image and likeness. They're going to be who they want to be. They're going to have the body they want to have. They're not going to listen to God, their creator or God, their father or anything. I think that's really happening in society now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I alluded to this a little bit at the beginning, but uh, certainly on a spiritual level, that's true. Culturally and psychologically, it's true as well. And in some of our other groups, we've talked a little bit about uh, what is going on in the world and what, especially in, you know, the last hundred years or so, uh, but what we see happening now that each generation has struggled with its own kind of psychological issues. Uh, but that early formation that we have as human beings is ever so essential in terms of our perception of reality and morality. And uh, the father figure 
the third in that triad, you know, of mother, child, and mother and child is an essential figure. In terms of our developing this capacity to understand the world around us and uh, the symbolism of reality that allows us to perceive things too. And the problem is, is that when there is a breakdown in that, where there is an absence of that male father figure, whether it's the father himself or grandfather, uncles or other male figures there, that what begins, you know, symbolically, the father is kind of the no within that, that triad that allows the child to uh, separate psychologically from the mother. Up until that time, it's mommy and me are one, as it were. And the, the, the entrance of the third into that reality allows uh, uh, an individual, as it were, to come into to being. They are compelled to engage the world around them outside of mother who feeds them and who has born them. And uh, you know, in deaf psychology in particular, they talk about this affecting the way that we perceive more, uh, reality, but also morality, right from wrong. Uh, and, uh, and when this has been severely hampered, there's no, unlike dealing with things such as depression or anxiety, that there is no therapeutic uh, method that is helpful in, in this regard that you can't shape a person's perception, reform a person's perception of reality once it's been formed in a certain way, in other words. And so if it's been deformed, even in a pre-verbal way, that there can be a kind of radical disorder that prevents a person from engaging in life and perceiving it uh, as those around them. And so you're right, you know, that what most, uh, uh, especially deaf psychologists see as potentially emerging in the future is a greater uh, prevalence of psychosis, that uh, this uh, distorted view of reality itself and an inability to engage in reality uh, of, of the world around them or and this need then to create that reality for oneself, you know, a perversion of, of that reality. And um, and I think we see it happen, happening on multiple levels. And the more we become unmoored, especially from our deeper identity as made in the image and likeness of God, where the ego becomes the center of our universe rather than God, then the distortion is going to become greater and greater. And you know, if we become God, if we become self-worshippers, which pretty much we have become, then others in this world become those not to be loved and to whom we give ourselves in love as Christ has shown us, but rather those who are obstacles perhaps to our happiness. And the moment that they become obstacle to our happiness or our freedom or our rights in some way, they become enemies. And so I don't want to go too far into, into that. I just want to spend, uh, we're already 
going pretty long here, and I just I'm not I don't think we're going to get through Tom's Father Tom's full reflection tonight. But I think this is important, and I think this is why are entering into this, not in a superficial way, but in a deep way that he's putting it before us is necessary. That we've been living our faith life on a superficial level for so many generations now. That, you know, we, when we are confront the realities of the world around us and we do not have the depth of faith or the intimacy with Christ and the experience of his grace uh, in a great enough measure to engage those realities, we're going to be quickly swept up into the, the movement of the world around us. And we see this happening on multiple levels, you know, that we can hear the Beatitudes proclaimed, and yet what we, what we live our lives by is not the Beatitudes or the commandments, but really what the world is telling us is worth our time and our attention and our love and our desire. And again, you know, in so many of our groups, we've talked about desire as meaning sense of lack or incompleteness. And if we do not see God as alone as fulfilling that, as making us whole, then we're going to be in this desperate pursuit, which we are to find things that lift us up, that fill that void, even if it's momentary. Or if we have to go to the lengths of reshaping reality to meet our own particular needs, which we see happening in our day too. I hope that doesn't come off too pointed. Sometimes I get a little uh, sweeping in the way I say things, but. Uh, in any case, I think it's true. So, the infinite passion. What did Jesus experience in his passion? Again, I offer not a definitive answer, but only an attempt at understanding. The infinite love that the Son expressed in his person had to be poured out completely in a human way, all the way to death. Because he became one of us, and because at the same time he is the eternal Son, he suffered the suffering of all, those who lived and died before him, as well as those who lived during the span of his historical life, and all those who will ever live. Likewise, he shared in the human death and died a human death, and he has lived and suffered and died for and with everyone before and after him. Finally, though he is human like us in everything but sin, he took on the sin of all people of all time, and by his sacrifice, he redeemed us all. Try then to imagine the passion from an infinite being. At the height of his agony, he could see not only the people who stood before him jeering or weeping, but all the people of all time. He saw us in our loving and in our refusing to love, our sinning and our repenting. At the same eternal moment, he took on all the moments of every life and death. He could be the infinite love of God in person to each human being who ever lived and whoever will live. He saw all of this and he suffered in his humanity. He died not only in material poverty, his clothing auctioned by dice, 
but also in the poverty of total abandonment by those closest to him. He experienced the refusal of, of divine love in the sin of all people of all time, not only in divine consciousness, but also in human consciousness. Surely this suffering was greater than any physical suffering. Those who did not flee from the cross, his mother and his beloved disciple, he let go of and gave away to, entrusting them to each other. Mary, honored by to be the human most intimate with God, gave him his human flesh, bore him in her womb, cradled him in her arms at birth, and again at death. Jesus left her to be mother, not only of his disciple, but also of us all, indeed mother of the church. She lives, gives us to Jesus as brothers and sisters, his passion has adopted so that we can call his beloved father, our father, and this beloved son. I mentioned before the suffering I saw in the ocean of faces in the busy city of India. I'm quite sensitive to the world's suffering and longing for God's love. I'm only sensitive in a limited way, and I could only see a certain people at a certain distance. I could only imagine, probably very inaccurately, their experience. Imagine knowing it all, experiencing, seeing it all, experiencing it all for all people of all time within infinite, with an infinite divine transparency and vulnerability. The silence that this mystery deserves recalls the silence in which Jesus died and breathed forth the spirit. A magnificent couple of paragraphs here, not that the whole thing isn't a magnificent reflection, but he, he draws us into the magnitude of this. I think we often see the passion again in a very linear uh, time-bound fashion and as the physical suffering and even mental suffering of Christ on the cross, but limited to himself. Whereas what I think what Father Tom opens our eyes to in this understanding of, of an omnivulnerable Lord, an omnivulnerable God who opens himself so radically in love to us that there is not one experience of sin of suffering, of death, that we, that he has not experienced. And so that means that there's not one thing that we experience, not one thing we've done, not one thing that we've suffered and endured, including our death, that we will ever experience in isolation because he has entered into it radically withholding nothing of himself. And to me, I, I think, if, you know, to me, this speaks uh, on the most profound level, because I think one of the things that we experience as human beings, and if COVID didn't teach us this, you know, other things in our life will, but I think it speaks so deeply to our experience of isolation as human beings, how deeply alone that we feel and unloved, unworthy, unlovable, unforgivable, that to understand that God knows that and knows us through and through, that he has embraced it as his own, 
that we not, need not fear it, we need not run away from it, we need not repress it or distract ourselves from it, but we can embrace it in the sense of knowing that he is there. And this is what our understanding of redemptive suffering uh, is, uh, you know, arises from, that in our union and communion with Christ, in our reception of him in the Eucharist, and our gift receiving of him in the, of, and his spirit, that now all that we experienced can be pressed to and united to the redemptive work of the cross. This is where we begin to understand what Paul said when he says, we make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, we would say, is nothing. But what is lacking is our participation in it. And so Paul is telling us, open your minds and your hearts to this radical identity, to this radical love of God who's taken upon himself everything that you are as a human being, all of your suffering and including your death, and allow yourself to be united to him, uh, not simply for yourself, but for all of humanity, that this is the depth of his love too, that in embracing all of this, he allows our embrace of it in love and faith to participate in his redemptive work. That there is no suffering that we experience that is insignificant, that is lacking in value. There's nothing that we do, no matter how small, no matter how you know unrecognizable to the world and people around us that does not have value. In fact, anything that is offered to God takes upon itself infinite value. And this is why every moment for us is so essential as human beings, that we don't let a moment pass without the remembrance of God and the remembrance of who we are in him. Every moment is freighted with destiny because it's a moment to love and to know the love of Christ and to make that love known to others. So my friends, we, we've reached eight o'clock, which is an hour and a half. And uh, I'm not going to press this through the rest of the reflection. I want you just to have it for yourself for the rest of this week. But I uh, do want to open it up now for any questions or comments that you might have on anything that's been said, you know, either by Father Tom in the reflection or in my comments. Uh, Sean writes, hi, Father. I think from what I've seen that a problem might be people seeing heaven in the future rather than deification as a reality we can begin to participate in here and now. That's right. You know, I think we have this tendency to push things off to a distance. Uh, and we even talk about the, the second coming or the end times in, in a kind of way that's out in the distant future, rather than it being now, that these are the end times, that God has manifested himself completely to us. There's nothing God has to reveal to us more than what he's given us in his son, which is perfect love and life. 
And so how we respond to that is what is essential. And so again, it forces us to live in the present moment. If you remember in one of the previous groups, we talked about what is described as eschatological maximalism. And the eschaton is simply the last things, the end things. And so we live understanding that these are the end times. Every single moment we live radically, not living in the past with regret, looking back at things that we can't change, nor looking to the, the, the future, you know, which we have no way of knowing, but living in, in the moment, which is most important. And the only thing that is really real to us is the, the moment in which we live now, because it's in the moment where we find our God in the most radical way. Any other comments? Okay, I know that was a weighty thing to throw at you here this evening. I've always been moved by this text. So if you're interested in his book, it's again, it's called The Passion of the Lamb. And it's Father Thomas Acklin, A-C-K-L-I-N. And just a wonderful little book, worthy certainly to have in your library and something that I think would be, of, you know, give great fruit for you spiritually. Okay. So why don't we close this? Oh, sister, did you have a question or a comment? Father, I just want to thank you for sharing this marvelous gem. Thank Truly you. Truly a, a great blessing. Thank you. You're very welcome. And I find it to be the same thing too, a hidden gem. I think in many ways, it's a little book and maybe so little, it seems insignificant, but I, I think if more people were exposed to it, it, could, it would be life-changing. And I think in many ways, this is what really needs to be at the heart of our evangelization too. If we aren't speaking about this, and more importantly, if we aren't living it, then all is for naught. And so if that could be our great prayer for this Holy Week, that we would at least come to see with a greater measure of faith, everything that Father Tom is speaking of here. Okay, why don't we close there then with, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. God bless you all and have a wonderful Holy Week. Remainder of your Holy Week.